Hello, and welcome to Lens, the podcast brought to you by British Screen Forum. My name is John Gisby, and I'm delighted that you're listening. Welcome to episode five of Lens with me, John Gisby, in which we're talking about the history of public service broadcasting with the people that have built it. I'm joined in this episode by James Pennell, whose time as a government minister includes being Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport, bookended by terms as Head of Strategy and latterly also Radio at the BBC. We talked about the long history of public service broadcasting and how it's often only at times of crisis that its value as a policy intervention can be fully appreciated. We also talked about how it has evolved and in particular about its role as an enduring catalyst and enabler at the heart of the UK's creative economy. He went on to share some fascinating insights as to how hard it can be for incumbents such as the BBC to understand and shape the changes that affect them and the existential risks that that can create. Delighted today to be joined by James Pennell. Thanks for joining uh, at relatively short notice and particularly for rearranging given ongoing COVID requirements. You're very welcome, John. Great. Um, I'm slightly wary of going toe to toe given I am still, my brain is still slightly foggy today with COVID, but we'll see where we get to. Um, by way of introduction, James started his career uh, in policy at the IPPR before moving to the BBC as its head of corporate planning. Uh, where he was one of the main architects of the BBC's strategy in the run-up to a charter renewal that secured the biggest increase in the licence fee for a generation. Uh, He then moved into politics, um, and in terms of our conversation today, uh, rose rapidly through the ranks until entering the Cabinet as as its youngest member uh, when he was Secretary of State for uh, uh, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, After leaving politics in 2010, returned to the BBC initially as Director of Strategy and then as Director of Radio and Education. Having left the BBC in 2020, he's now President and Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Arts London. So, James, uh, of all the people we're talking to, uh, firstly, you have one of the longest arcs in terms of strategy and policy issues, which is great. Um, But also, I think you're unique in the sense that you've been both sides of the table. You've been the advocate and the architect uh, at one of the main protagonists. Um, but also being the other side of the table in in overall charge of, of kind of policy in which all the incumbents sit. Uh, which, I mean, frankly, is a is a is a pretty unvan- uh, unrivaled vantage point. Um, I'm going to start with the easy one. Uh, given given your views and your experience over the last, uh, I won't go into how long, significant period of time. Um, what is public service broadcasting, and why does it matter? Let's start there. So, I mean, public service broadcasting came out of an era when you know there was a new technology coming along in in the wireless, as it was called then. And we as society then uh, thought about what that would mean for us collectively. And we came up with a way of having, as then it was the only um, uh, real medium in, in wireless, but now as part of the mix, uh, public service broadcasters who provide content which makes us happier. I mean, in all sorts of interesting ways. But you know, I think public service broadcasting is how we as a society define some of the content that we want in a way that will improve our well-being. And, uh, you know, here we are, whatever, 100 years later, exactly. And we have some some new and not so new technologies, which, again, raise questions about disinformation, quality, uh, belonging, representation, diversity, accuracy. And public service broadcasting is, is probably the most effective lever that we have as a society to make sure that those things make us overall happier rather than less happy. Uh, a lot to unpack, which is really the purpose of the next next 45 minutes or so. Um, from a policy point of view, when you're sitting on the government side of the table, why does it matter? Well, I think it's one of those things that most politicians don't think about uh, until the moment, moments of crisis or when it's threatened. So, you know, it, it'd be lots of politicians who wouldn't have thought particularly about um, EPG regulation or, uh, you know, must carry or, or whatever. But then you get to a moment like COVID and you do want the content which is going to save people's lives being easily available to people. Um, or you get to a moment like the Ukraine and you realise, you know, the BBC is, I think, unparalleled now in the world in terms of its ability to tell international 
stories. So it's one, and in a way, that's a good thing. The system works pretty well, so people aren't thinking about it the whole time. Um, politicians obviously think about uh, their press. You know, they think about winning elections, and even for politicians who don't always love the BBC, kind of, you know, they don't want to be at the mercy of just one or two owners. So having someone, private owners, commercial owners, so having some part of the media mix which is regulated for accuracy and impartiality it is an argument they, they care about. And then they'll care about, you know, the BBC. I, I take it we're talking most about the BBC, not sure, much about Channel 4, but yep. a lot of the arguments apply to Channel 4 as well. You know, it touches on so many different aspects of the national life that there are parts which care, there are the parts of what it does which will appeal to every single politician, either in a positive way or negative way. You know, if you're someone who really cares about sport, you'll care about listed events, you'll care about, you know, whether the BBC is port the rugby, you'll care about um, the representation of, um, uh, you know, you care about advertising to kids. So, so all politicians have got a reason for being interested in the BBC. There's a minority, but quite significant group, who are also deeply interested in the policy. It's interesting that when the kind of the broad arguments come up about what might happen in the future, <clears throat> and is is radical change either necessary or possible? Different different question. But is it is it uh, would it be possible? The arguments against it tend to be around. Well, you couldn't charge viewers for BBC One because they've had it for free forever and they'd be very grumpy, and that's politically un, un, unwinnable. Interestingly, what doesn't necessarily come up is, but here is the be- here are, here are the policy objectives that having something like that PSB can deliver. Yeah. So it start it starts with what's politically feasible, yeah. Rather than actually, this is uh, this is the policy lever that dare I say it, uh, when the argument's made the other way round, um, is made very articulately in terms of the the um, the value to the creative industries or to political discourse or to social progression and so on. Do those arguments cut through? Are politicians aware of them, or do they? Uh, I mean, if it if it if it is the big policy lever that can be pulled, you'd think the politicians would talk more about that. Yeah, I think it depends how it's a classic issue of framing. You know, if the issue is framed as what do we want as a society, and the impact that our media has on you know all the issues we care about: education, obesity, international peace, um, elections, you know, anything, and, and we think about what we decide collectively, you know, which we do the whole time. We do it with the NHS, we do it with the BBC. You know, the, the idea that you wouldn't have a, a really strong lever as part of the mix in, ter- in, in the BBC feels odd, I would say. Um, if you start from, I don't watch the BBC, I shouldn't have to pay for it, uh, then you know you're on the back foot about w- why those public service objectives are so important. So, so I think in any future debate about the BBC, framing it at the right level, and I suppose winning that battle of ideas. You know, I think the BBC has been most vulnerable in periods where the, the received wisdom was very much about individual welfare and individual choice, um, whereas actually. You know, and clearly the BBC has got some arguments on that um, in terms of value and quality of programmes, but its strongest argument is a collective one. We collectively decide to have this thing, uh, you know, and like the army or the NHS, not everybody uh, agrees with it, but we've decided to have it overall, and that's one of the things that makes our society work in the way where it does. Now, is that an argument that's going to work viscerally for politicians? Not always. For some, it would. For others, it will be things which illustrate that. So when people say, oh, well, we, just, we should just have the license fee for, for Radio 4 and for news and for orchestras, if someone then says, well, that means that you get your subsidised and people have to pay for Strictly, it, it's a visceral thing to deal with and it's visceral because it illustrates the argument. And you know, the argument being that universality means that we all get a better quality of programmes and that there's you know a particular type of programme which is made very effectively through a license fee, like Strictly, because you know, all the things we could talk about, about it bringing the nation together, which is harder to do on a streaming service, having you know, deep respect for um, the audience and for the contestants in a way that is sometimes harder to do if you're advertiser-funded. So, so I think it's a mixture of theory and, and individual examples. So another individual example would be 
you know, John Whittingdale had all sorts of questions about the BBC, although he was actually very thoughtful about it. But one of the key moments in Charter Review was he went to a UK music reception and he was a very, very big fan of, of music. And one of the members of MP4, which was the in-house MPs band, got him up on stage and got him to promise not to privatise Radio 1 and Radio 2, which he did. <laughs> um, but again, that's a visceral moment. You know, why that, that is you know, the argument you were just making about the value of the BBC to the creative industries, but done in a way which penetrated an ideological um, uh, framework. Um, I'm going to move on to the creative industries. One of the things you've talked about in the past is uh, um, at a time when studios are full and writers and post-production are busy, Mm -hmm. um, but with a lot of inward investment, uh, particularly from the US, uh, there's actually a paradox here that the risk is that um, the risk is that we're not, if we're not careful, the investment that's not still going into UK originations uh, from uh, from the main PSBs or is is in decline. Yeah. Finding a solution to that is actually pretty important, not only for culture but also for the creative industries. I think probably under your watch, particularly a government, the kind of the idea of a creative economy um, uh, particularly started to get, gather momentum. To what extent, again, is the economic argument for that widely understood in government and the degree to which the PSBs are pump primers and trainers um, and kind of the on-ramp for talent widely understood? And therefore, if you put that at risk, you put you put the industrial strategy at risk that sees the inward investment. I think it's definitely known in DCMS and then it's known in different parts of government. I think when it comes to um, Bayes, because they don't look after uh the creative industries directly. Sometimes you're a bit on the back foot having to to make that case. And I think with this government, they can be reminded of the importance of the creative industries, but their, their, their first reaction is to talk about STEM and to talk about technology and medical sciences and all, all, all those very important sectors. So I think this debate comes and goes. You know, clearly the height of cool Britannia, the creative industries were very much at the top of that list. Um, I don't think it's the sort of thing to panic about, but I think we're probably thought of in the second, we're probably the second thing at the moment that people in government think about when they think about British industrial strength. And it'd be nice to be in that, it'd be nice to be in that first rank. Um, social contract. You, I mean, in the conversations we've had, there are basically kind of two models. There's public service broadcasting. Right, can I just say one other thing about, about the creative industries? Yeah, of course. Which is, I think, looking back on the debate over 30 years, one thing we've never really bottomed out is where the UK's strength structurally is in the creative industries and this debate between ip creators on the one hand and platforms on the other and you know of course having lots of international investment into our production facilities is a fantastic thing um and of course it'd be fantastic if the uk you know created um platforms uh which were um, you know, as effective as a Spotify or, or an Amazon or, or Netflix. But I think there's a hard-headed look that needs to be taken at that, which is, is our industrial strength actually around IP creation? And how would we feel if we ended up with essentially being a an outsourcer from the West Coast and from China uh, where we produce it, but all the IP goes back to other countries? Um, and, and, you know, there were some of our... Uh, you know, we have a very successful film company, but uh, sector, but not an awful lot of the IP stays in the UK. In in broadcasting, in tech TV, if you're a producer, you've got the choice. You know, you can go to Netflix and you'll get well paid, but you won't keep any of the IP. Or you could go to a regulated public service broadcaster and you'll keep a very significant proportion of your of your IP. So, it, and I I don't think government i ever saw that properly worked out what what the balance of advantages between between those two it's something that um i know david abrahams has been talking about uh a lot in the past as well that, i mean the risk of being singapore so we make lots of stuff but essentially it's it's other people's stuff um, yeah. uh, and the role of sort of well-funded commissioning investment whatever the institution and how you do it uh, as a as a means to UK focused IP is 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 part of the mix, but again, it's a highly calibrated, regulated mixture of private and public to make it to make it all work. Yeah, it doesn't feel very resilient, you know, in an uncertain world. It, it, you know, if you've got people who are not stakeholders in the UK making those investment decisions, 
they could all go somewhere else. And you know, that's industrially threatening and it's also culturally uh, not very resilient, I would say. And how do you respond to the idea that it's 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 harder to make the argument coherently when the human investment is is flowing very um, very substantially? I think it's great that it's flowing here. I think it's partly flowing here because of that investment from public service broadcasters. That's partly why we've got all the great technical skills that people uh, that people want. But then I think you just go and look at the programs which are being made, and you know if you, you you will find occasional programs on Netflix or Disney or Amazon which are about the UK. But it's a thimble compared to what ITV Channel Four, Channel Five, and the BBC and Sky make. So, so you know, there are countries around the world who don't really have a media about themselves. Um, we in the UK are lucky that we're big enough and have a history of public service broadcasting that is strong enough that we still have an awful lot of content about uh, about ourselves. But and because we do, it's hard to persuade people that that's in any way a jeopardy. But it genuinely is, you know. And you look across new newspapers where the business model is challenged. You look across public service broadcasting where there's this debate. You know, a key thing that we've always had is media about ourselves, from you know Shakespeare, Chaucer onwards. And we need to make sure that we manage, we maintain that. Um, I can't remember where I read it, uh, but uh, uh, one of the things looking at the, the kind of slate of originations and what what the human investment tends to lead, in, lead into. Um, inevitably, there's a lot of crowns and spitfires. Um, not yeah. necessarily, not necessarily cutting edge drama about uh, less, obviously significantly less cutting edge um, material about about what it's like to live in the UK today. Totally, totally. And, and um, you know, the crowns and spitfire; these are all great programs, but you also have something very precious in public service broadcasting, which makes difficult programs uh, programs about. Um, the Hebrides programs set in well, you know, all of those things. Uh, so it's great that the streamers are investing here. It's great they're making more programs which are based on the UK, but they're never going to replace what we get, the quantity or quality that we get from public service broadcasters. And you may be able to comment on this or better quantity than Quantity or diversity we get from public service broadcasters. And you're probably best placed, better placed than many to comment on this. The intellectual underpinning of that in terms of what Ofcom and BBC Charters and everybody else has laid out in terms of what typifies public service content um, is it's not just necessarily high quality and high production values, but yeah. there are a whole other range of things around its public purposes and the, and the policy objectives it needs to reach. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, 50 years ago, one might have complacently said, well, you know, the, uh, the only high quality TV that comes, uh, comes out of the BBC, well, that wasn't true from then because of ITV, etc. But, but clearly, there's lots of other good ways of funding quality television. Without the license fee and public service broadcasting, you wouldn't fund the kind of television that we get now. You know, if you took the BBC out, there's just literally no way that Netflix and Amazon are going to step in and reproduce all those all those programs. Um, in the conversations we've had broadly, they've become they've kind of two models float up. One of which I think is one that you've spoken about in in speeches in the past. Uh, you've likened public service broadcasting essentially to to the National Health Service. It is a kind of it is a it is a collective public public intervention uh, in national well being, very broadly defined. Um, but that could be the things I mentioned before: social progression, uh, information, etc. Uh, the other is gaps. So we intervene where there are gaps, and the market won't provide. Um, and uh, I guess my question is: How has that? Uh, and, and all of that, 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 those two models, in a sense, have been underpinned by Ofcom's remit since day one, which has balanced the citizen and the consumer and trying to reconcile the interests of each. Um, occasionally, perhaps, reconciling interests that they don't necessarily know they had or wouldn't choose to exercise themselves, but but uh, but this, this helps them get there. Um, how has the debate between those models ebbed and flowed, and to what extent are they shaped by the kind of the politics of the day or are they able to shape the politics of the day god that is a brilliant question um it, it goes back to that point about framing it, you know i would have said in the 80s early 90s it would have been completely common sense to start from what the market provides and look at gaps you know it, it was almost insane in those days to say well why would you start from the market um and then i think with ofcom and then i suppose in particular tessa giles a charter review and the whole work she did on public value, we, we, and in particular the work that she did um, around charter review and public value, we went to a completely different framing, which was public value. Uh, so what is it that we want as a society and how do we use the market, 
public service broadcasting, different forms of funding, regulation to achieve that public value. And so I think there's been a, probably that was the high point of seeing things in a public value collective decision framework, if you put it, if you put it that way. Um, but actually there hasn't been a complete return to a much more free market, you know, start from what the market does and that, you know, the BBC is just there to fill in, fill in the gaps. I think there is, you know, there's, there's a, there's a group of conservative MPs, uh, who are extremely supportive of the BBC, a lot of whom came in under David Cameron, uh, who see it as part of their kind of a centrist appeal, you know, for some of them a kind of view of what conservatives, conservatism means, you know, successful British institutions. Um, but, you know, we're not living in a neoliberal moment. Uh, so, so, so we did talk about what kind of moment we're in. We're probably not in a public value moment either. But I, I don't think we've, I think we had essentially the free market moment under Thatcher stopped really under Major. You then had a much more um, public value, very supportive moment under under Blair and Brown. Cameron was basically pretty supportive. You know, it fitted in with big society in many, in many ways. Certainly, you know, being anti-BBC would have been very damaging for his centrist credentials. And now, like many other things, it's a bit bit more back, a bit more up in the air, um, uh, theoretically. Uh, I would say, but I would say probably the the pieces are still being being arranged. We'll come on at the end as to whether you think it's winnable or not um, right. going forward, and and how to how to make that case. Um, one of the issues that uh, when you kind of distill it all out um, is at the core uh, is universality. So. Um, uh, I think um, you and others. I mean, but on, uh, this is, <laughs> in a sense, both both sides of the argument have uh, have have gone into battle on this. I think you've spoken in the past about um, everyone benefits because everyone pays versus everyone pays so everyone needs to benefit. I mean, there's a get that right, and there's a virtuous circle. But mm-hmm. the, the the James Murdoch um, McTaggart argument is um, if your if your starting point is a universal hypothecated tax, then the BBC is empowered and obliged to have a fairly significant scale and scope because it needs to serve everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, unpicking that, um, is it is it possible to imagine a BBC where uh, where essentially some services are universal and some aren't? And and has that has that? I mean, if you look back at some of the Ofcom PSB reviews, there's always been that kind of undercurrent of this is probably unsustainable in the long run. So how would we unpick it and make it work in different ways? And there's been you know there's been UKTV, there's been there's been other uh, other initiatives along the way. But has any serious thought been given to that along the way? Because as the peanut butter gets spread ever more thinly, it becomes harder and harder to uh, to deliver. I remember the start of the whole charter review um, process in. 2013, 2014, our first meeting, we said, are we still up for universality? Does that still matter? So we spent a whole day talking about that. And the reason that we concluded that we were is that without universality, you can't deliver the public value. You know, if you want to get out a message about COVID, which is going to save lives, if you can only get it out to a third of the population, then you, you can't deliver the public value. You know, if you want to have an education service which suddenly teaches kids at home who aren't in school, you know, that's got to be universally uh, available. And, and, you know, the, the impact which the BBC has on our national debate and national values both comes from the fact that it's widely shared, but also that people aren't excluded from it. You know, you never know when you're going to de- develop a passion for classical music, but the BBC is always going to be there if you if you do. So, and I... What I would say about that James Murdoch point, which is interesting, is starting from the wrong end. You know, you start from the policy objectives and you ask yourself whether universality is important, which I certainly think it is. But what it does do inside the BBC is it creates a a real obligation that people feel day in, day out, which is everyone's paying, therefore we should morally be delivering something to them. So, So it's not exactly the same argument James is making. It's more... You know, it, it's a protection against the BBC becoming highbrow and elitist, for example. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's a creative tension all the way through the history of the BBC between the public service objectives and universality, and it 
sometimes it can fall into ratings chasing and other times it can fall into being uh, elitist but but that tension broadly works pretty well and gets the balance right between between universality and doing content that other people wouldn't do in ways they, that they wouldn't do <clears throat> to answer your question I think you have some services which weren't available to everyone. I think, you know, the BBC clearly already does. It has some subscription uh, services. Um, but I think there's a fundamental problem with the subscription model, which is either you put all the good stuff in the subscription tier, in which case you've got a rump BBC, which doesn't achieve its goals, uh, public service goals, uh, or you put all the good stuff in the license fee, in which case I'm not sure you're going to have a very successful subscription model. Yeah. So, so I suppose I would summarize my position as I'm pretty conservative about the goals. I still broadly think the Rethian approach is the right one, you know, inform, educate, entertain, universality, um, a broad scope of, of services. I think given the way the market is changing, I, I am, you know, very happy to be radical about the means for doing that. If means can be found, which will deliver those, deliver those goals. Um, so, for example, you know, if if there were if Channel Four was part of the BBC or if UK TV channels were BBC branded, that would be a way of underpinning value um, by showing that you know the, the BBC was providing a wider range of services. I'd be open to something like that. There's all sorts of technical and legal problems with doing it, but, but so, so I think we shouldn't completely close off the debate about are, are the hybrid models of funding. I, I can't see how you could fund the BBC mainly through subscription and it'd be the BBC that delivers the goals that it does at the moment. There's an interesting comment um, or uh, something I read that um, Melvin Bragg commented around that universality actually both work, works both ways. I mean, there's, there's up and down is the wrong way of thinking about this, sure. um, but the, the degree to which um, people who wouldn't necessarily see uh, arts and culture programs might might be encouraged to see them equally. People for whom that is what they would primarily see, it's uh, there's actually significant social benefit in them watching stuff that they wouldn't be exposed to uh, uh, as well. That's interesting point. Yeah. Um, uh, and and actually, the great thing about broadcasting is because you can do it in private, both sides win. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from a from a social point of view, for universality, there is, there is also in there an economic argument, yeah. which is always incredibly hard to get across. But the fact that we all pay for it once, but then could or watch programs uh, which are funded by the license fee does mean that the the kind of the surplus goes to the consumer rather than to the uh, to, to the provider. So it's essentially, you know, there's because it's a public good, you can make a program and then anybody can access it. That means that even if it's worth one p to you to watch it, you can still do it and it's financially viable. Whereas with Sky, they they price it up to the economically rational point, which is, you know, and for that piece of content, in my example, it might be 70p. So if everybody for whom it's worth less than 70p doesn't get access to it. And, and Sky captures the economic surplus from that. In the license fee model, it goes to the, it goes to the user. These arguments were, I suspect, uh, easier to make when the technology had scarcity. So when there's only a certain amount of stuff, and there's only a certain amount of pipes or certainly a certain amount of channels that can be done, the, the call that was made in radio in the 20s and, and obviously extended into TV uh, was essentially almost sort of reverse censorship. It's sort of deciding the content that's going to go down those pipes is, is too, too great a social uh, opportunity to miss. Um, in a world in which the technology allows infinite choice um, and, and huge consumer choice and new business models to emerge, how do you sustain the argument that for universality to work, it needs to be that institutions like the BBC need to have enough money to have an impact? There's a difference between availability, ensuring that content is available, and actually having services that are sufficiently well funded that people watch them. And you lose the, you lose the policy benefit if people aren't watching them, even if the content's made. Yes, I think it's a really good point. Look, I think the scarcity argument was always quite a winning argument in the short term, but in the long term, it hasn't helped the BBC because it created this idea that, oh, well, the only reason we've got the BBC is only two channels and you couldn't have, you know, couldn't have them all commercially owned or, you know, we could only have X radio stations, so we couldn't have them all. So, so, and I think what that meant was the argument was less made on the, point, the basis we've been talking about it, which is, 
what are your policy objectives and how does public service broadcasting contribute to that? And I think, you know, once you think about it that way, the fact that we've got infinite numbers of channels, which, you know, if you take every central media account as a channel, you know, is, is, is pretty much true. It's not infinite, but it's, you know, uh, extremely large. Is that delivering the kind of society and information culture that we want? No. You know, I mean, it's most obvious in news, it's most obvious with disinformation. Um, it's, I think, very obvious with kids' programs. You know, you want our kids growing up knowing about our own culture and an infinite number of providers would probably not be able to fund kids' content in the UK in the way that the BBC does just because there wouldn't be the investment. Um, I think it's pretty clear with COVID. So, so I think the BBC needs to, not the BBC, the BBC supporters need to sort of let go of that crutch and make the argument on public service broadcasting and its goals and the fact it's very hard to see how you'd reproduce them without without that. But I think you have, therefore have to be open to what is the right way of delivering that going to be in this very different and changing changing market. Um, uh, I think you know a good, a good example of that is probably some of the commercial regulation of the BBC, um, where, you know, I think there is now broader support for the BBC from commercial players, including Sky, actually, because there is some method for them to be able to be heard about what services the BBC does and doesn't deliver. So, yeah, I, I think the BBC, I would say, and its supporters need to be clear whether they still believe in those objectives. And as I say, I do but then be open to what is the best way of delivering that between 2027 and hopefully 2037. Um, one, you were in the foothills, I suspect, of some of the things that will uh, uh, loom larger. Um, contestable funding. Mm -hmm. So in that context, perfectly conceivable that other institutions uh, who are already, already creating content that Ofcom would probably recognize as public service value content, um, even though it's not necessarily appearing on a public service regulated form of distribution. Uh, from your point of view, what, what were the arguments pushed back against contestable funding? Because it essentially starts to identify the policy objectives with a specific institution to deliver them. Yes, yeah, so the government did try this with children's media. They created a contestable fund and they just closed it down because it didn't work. Uh, and again, that's an example of where the visceral often makes the argument, which is intellectually harder to make. You know, we, we try to make the argument that if you want to get achieve your policy objectives, you have to have distribution as well as uh, uh, as well as uh, content creation. We try to make the argument that uh, by having those programs in a broadcaster that had an obligation to its audience, it created the right set of incentives to both make sure that they were good programs and that you had the right mix of programs. Uh, and we try to make the argument that actually there is a set of skills which comes from being an institution like the BBC in terms of commissioning and showcasing and distributing. And frankly, ideologically, John Whittingdale and his team at the time weren't really prepared to listen to that. So they've gone ahead and they've tried it and they've discovered all of those lessons because it didn't work. Um, so, so I think contestable funding, yeah, clearly it works well with the Arts Council. So there are places where, where, where it works. But in broadcasting, because you need to be of su sufficient scale to get the attention of the audience if you break the money down into lots of little bits, if it doesn't have, you know, the, the thing at BBC is that point I was making earlier, which that we feel, a, we, they feel a responsibility to serve all of their audience and to make programs which are high quality. There's something about being an institution which is judged across the range of your programs, which creates all the right set of incentives. And, it, you know, the BBC does have a set of vocational skills and values which are very helpful to making those programs well. So um, I'm be very happy to see further funds to support content creation but taking the license fee and turning it into a contestable funding model would i think not work and and not achieve the goals that we want from the bbc and from what you're saying it seems that the connection between the content commissioner and the audience owner 
um, in terms of distribution is is a sort of symbiotic one, and the two feed off each other. Um, and and so I mean there there are there are other ways of doing this. Um, PBS is a, is a is a different model, but essentially a content create creator that is then syndicating out to a whole bunch of different people who are sort of stakeholders. Um, but that severs that link. Um, and yeah, therefore, I mean, and therefore you lose all, all, all the stuff we were talking about about if you want if you want to achieve the policy objectives, you need a certain scale and scope. Again, all of these dovetail together and become quite hard to unpick. Yes, I mean the BFI is a contestable fund, isn't it? Um, yeah. And they do some fantastic work. And yeah, some might say the reason they don't have the impact of the BBC is they don't have the four billion pounds of the BBC. But I think there's also something. And, and that model is, I'm, I'm not querying that model for, for film, but in broadcasting, I, I think you would also lose those three things, which is, you know, the right set of incentives facing the audience, the institutional skills and, uh, uh, and values, and the ability to put together a balanced package of, you know, balanced schedule or streaming offer or whatever you want to call it these days. And, and particularly then continuing to be able to reinvent that for younger audiences that at the moment are, are, are such a challenge to get into the habit. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, distinctiveness. Um, obviously came in as a, as a topic under the charter. Uh <laughs> Definable, regulatable. I mean, I, I take, we we talked earlier around Strictly. I mean, I, I can see the argument that Strictly on BBC One fulfills all those public service requirements. Um, I suspect it does on all the commercial channels that it goes around the world that it's uh, syndicated to around the world as well. And similarly, at a time when David Attenborough is making uh, great nat- natural history shows for the BBC and Netflix and Sky, um, it becomes increasingly. Uh, sort of degree of sophistry, I think, isn't there in, in defining what what distinctiveness means? So, or is there, I, I guess the, other, the the alternative argument is it's the the Kenneth Clark argument about civilization, which is that you know I know it when I see it, and therefore you, you if you if it's not distinctive, you kind of know it as well. But is it is it any more scientific than that? Well, I think distinctiveness is both about the range of programs and services and the way those programs are made. So, if you take radio, for example. You know, no one else in the market has the range of uh, radio stations that the BBC does. Um, so there are definitely some things which are being done there which aren't being done in the market. But, you know, if you listen to a pop station from Global or Bauer, it is different to Radio 1. Um, and uh, some of that you can regulate or measure. So, you know, proportion of new music and, and things like that. But there is a distinctiveness to how programs are made when you are license fee funded and regulated, which is just different. And so that, that's why having, having an institutional lever like the BBC or, or Channel 4 is an important addition to regulation because it is really hard to regulate those things. Um, so in a way, I can see it when I, I know what James, I see you, it. You look as though you're frozen. I don't know if you I suppose there's some truth to that because it's a matter of taste. But if you want to, if you want to action that, you're much better off having an institution which is imbued with those values, which is accountable for delivering, you know, the producer guidelines and all those things. Um, because then, when you listen to Radio One versus Capital, you know, both incredibly good radio stations, but they are different. So, so I think, um, I think there is a, um, there is a distinctiveness to the quality of the content. Which, which, you know, it doesn't mean that you could, you know, clearly you can see extremely good programs on ITV, extremely good uh, radio stations, um, but the way the BBC are funded means there's both a different range and a distinctiveness to how those programs, programs are made. Um, if you look both, both at your time in government, but also um, your time uh, within the BBC, what, what were the ones that got away? What were the opportunities that were missed? Well, I'm sure you've spoken about kangaroo with other, <laughs> with other colleagues, so that definitely bounced away. Um, so for people who don't know kangaroo, this was an attempt, a pro- the project name uh, uh, for the public service broadcasters in the UK, trying to do Netflix a long time before Netflix. And you know, I, think, I think actually if you look at the UK, we have got some pretty health, healthy streamers compared to other Public service streamers, you know, iPlayer and BBC Sounds are pretty significant in the market. Um, I haven't looked at the data recently, but, you know, the data I saw on Sounds showed that 
we were the only country where the public service broadcasting uh, audio player was in the top two. So it was Spotify and, and, and Sounds in the UK. I, I don't think there was another market in the survey that I saw where that was the case. And clearly, you know, ITV or for um, ITV Hub got you know, a significant share of the market. But I think there is something about, I think we used to call it a bear trap at the BBC. You know, if you have a really big platform, people come to that platform and then you can show them the content which they might want to watch next. And I think if the UK had been able to pull that off, that would have been really, really advantageous from the point of view of public policy as well as the um, and, and consumer value uh, as well as the, the providers. Um, and still, a point I made to Mark Thompson the other day that's slightly crazy that, what is it now, 10 years on, you've still got four institutions who are uh, increasingly strapped for commissioning budgets, investing in separate separate technologies and separate branding and separate marketing and all the rest um, at, a, at a time when we're up against global streamers with, uh, with global footprints. Yeah. Well, when I was at the BBC, I was very interested in bringing um, commercial radio into, into BBC Sounds. And we worked pretty hard at it. Uh, in the end, they wouldn't come on if it was called BBC Sounds. And the BBC couldn't quite persuade itself to take the BBC off Sounds. Um, but, you know, the, the tragedy of this in all sorts of markets, not just in broadcasting, but in film, is you know, the, the incumbents can never quite get themselves over those issues. So someone else comes in and does it for them instead. You know, the studios could clearly have done Netflix before Netflix but probably couldn't get themselves around the table to work out yeah. how to do it. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, I, th- I think we'll have to face in the next chart of the fact that that opportunity has gone. So the question is, what is the regulatory response to that? You know, what, what, what are the debates going to be about access to data, prominence of UK content, um, et cetera, on the streaming platforms? And then what does that mean for the model for the BBC and for, for Channel 4? One of the things that's being flagged as the, the next leap forward is the move from PSB to PSM, so broadcasting to media, um, right. uh, recognizing the technological shift. Uh, particularly during your, your, your recent time at the BBC, the, the, the things that you were starting to get going, um, my BBC, not only in terms of personalization and algorithms, but also the data opportunities underneath that, I suspect, Moving BBC Three online um, and the, uh, the the kind of commissioning and, and catalyzing of content that isn't TV first, so BBC Ideas and, and others. How easy was that to get going? Because um, your voice is really breaking up in mind, Craig. I don't know if that's a problem. Sorry, should I try that again? I will. I will lean in and see if that's any better. In fact, hang on a second. In very old school it way, it might be my Wi-Fi rather. Than- no, don't worry. In a very old school way, I've just opened the door in, in the hope that that might make a difference. <laughs> um, hopefully, that'll strengthen the Wi-Fi signal. Um, I was just saying that the um, one of the things that uh, uh, sort of characterised um, a lot of your innovation during your most recent stint at the BBC is the what's being characterised as public service broadcasting to public service media. Um, so recognising that. Uh, linear will always have a role, um, but actually not only as a distribution pipe, but actually the the nature of the technology changes the content. Um, how easy was it in a world where you were um, moving BBC Three online, uh, investing in BBC Ideas as a kind of made for internet rather than made for, uh, for scheduled content, um, and starting to think through the possibilities of data and a public service algorithm, um, how easy was that to do? Um, to what extent did that have to be done at arm's length from the rest of the organization? And to what extent could that then – sometimes uh, the, the, the example we spoke through with with, uh, with Mark Thompson at the, at the New York Times is um, a fairly dramatic transformation where he put that front and center. Um, how hard was that to get traction in the BBC and what were the lessons learned? It was pretty hard um, and you know, for good reasons that you would do something on, on YouTube or on, you know, BBC Ideas on social media and you'd – you do seem to get less attribution for that. So attribution is, do people know it came from the BBC? Yep. Um, and, you know, the BBC was getting huge audiences from its channels, radio stations, from iPlayer. So th- there was always quite a strong burden of proof that had to be overcome if you wanted to do stuff which was uh, internet content. 
Um, having come out of the BBC, I feel more strongly even than, than I did when I was then that it's vital for the BBC to do because we, we now live in a primary, we live in an internet first world or social media first world. And I think if you work at the BBC, you know, you still listen and watch programs a bit like it's 2005 because you're aware of all that content and you, you, you know, you, you don't have the kind of discovery issue that people outside have. Now, clearly that's not true about all segments of the audience. There's some segments who just come in, some people just come in, put on ITV or put on the BBC. But um, for, you know, if you project it for 10, 20 years, that trend is only going to continue. So I, I think the BBC should be thinking about how it m- makes social media and the internet more public service as much, if not more, than how do we get value and attribution from the content that we're putting out there. But but that, that would be a very big change of mindset. And the BBC would have to feel confident that that social purpose would be valued by government and funded by government. So, you know, a, a good example of it, I think, is children's content, where we make brilliant children's content uh, in the UK, um, most of it made by the BBC. But increasingly, children are going to YouTube, they're going to Netflix, you know, at what point does the BBC start to think that content needs to be on YouTube or Netflix? You know, if someone goes to YouTube and searches for information about dinosaurs, are we happy with them getting information from National Geographic? And are we happy about them getting it from National Geographic and a bunch of um, uh, diverse content producers? Or do you want the BBC's content in there? Uh, and so th- there's, a, there's, a, there's an, a balance to be got here between value and social purpose. But I think whether it's on education or children's content or news, I think the BBC is starting to think internet first rather than inequality between internet and traditional channels is a, is a step that's not complete yet at the BBC. What was the scope and ambition for the public service algorithm? And, and I guess what's behind the question is, is, is to what extent was that kind of curating BBC content and kind of reinventing the serendipity of the schedule? Or was it a broader conversation around how do we kite mark public service type content that could be from a number of different providers and that could be the BBC's role as that as the, as the kind of curator of that space? Yeah, so I think in the end it ended up being uh, mostly focused on the BBC's own products and on Sounds and iPlayer. And therefore, we never really got into that wider that wider discussion. Um, there were some quite ambitious plans to do that for voice, um, where I think with the right regulatory backing, you could have had um, the ability for the BBC to be kind of guide to a public service guide to content uh, uh, and discovered and delivered in that way. But I, th- I think I think that project has now been deprioritized as far as I know. I think it would have been a really interesting project if we had got into aggregating content, as the BBC calls it, so in sounds or, or in iPlayer or even news. But but I think the current strategy of the BBC is more focused on its own content, on its own on its own platforms. I guess my last question on this is the um, personalization around my BBC and authentication and, and registration and all the rest of it obviously unlocks a direct consumer relationship in terms of what the content is and recommendations and all the rest of it. Was there any sense that that kind of future proofs possible subscription? It really wasn't for that. No. I mean, I think the the core debate here is, or certainly in the BBC is we get best attribution on our own services. So it's much better if people listen to radio one or use the iPlayer or use BBC sounds. Uh, If we invest outside of that, it's much lower value. To which my question is, is that a winning strategy in the end? If, if you do focus your content on your own platforms, are you increasingly serving really well a heartland audience and not reaching the people who don't come to your platforms? So, you know, whether it, you know, whether it was about um, aggregating content or public service algorithm or making content for YouTube or, uh, or social media, you know, I, I accepted that might not be the best strategy, but it might be the best available strategy uh, because 
you know, if you if you continue out the current trends in terms of who uses BBC platforms, it seems to me that that will become a heartland audience rather than a, a universalist audience. Um, plus, you know, where are lots of the um, public value goals and policy problems in contemporary media? They are on those platforms. They are on social media. They are, um, uh, you know, around the lack of competition around search. So the BBC thinking about how it could play in those roles was a way that, that I did see as a way of future proofing the BBC, but but not as a route to subscription. Um, I'm going to wrap things up and sort of slightly look forward. Um, one of the things we've done as part of uh, preparing for these sessions is, is come back and reread all the Ofcom Public Service Broadcasting Reviews, uh, which was actually remarkably quick because you read the first one and you've essentially read all of them because, you know, <laughs> plus or minus... Uh, you know, there is a the policy objectives we kind of understand. We understand what we built to achieve them. Um, there's this sort of mutually reinforcing mix of public and private, and remits and regulation and and so on. But uh, what happens at some point with a license fee? Channel four is probably not sustainable. The ad market's not going anywhere, and we've got big platforms coming in. Um, if you take the time span that we we have the luxury of in this in these conversations of, of taking, so we're, we're taking quite a long long time frame looking back, but also looking forward. To what extent do you agree that you know the frog's been in the hot water for some time, um, and the, the the temperature of the water is heating up? Uh, every PSB review says you know it's 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 okay for now. The audiences still love it, but it's probably going to change pretty quickly. So we ought to start doing the heavy lifting. If you take uh, John Burt's famous maxim of don't let things happen to you, so I think your response was, uh, you know, he saved the BBC through boldness. I guess my question is, as an industry, BBC, obviously the most important protagonist in, in this context, but as an industry right now, what should the industry be doing to be bold and getting ahead of this and potentially putting putting solutions together, given the fact that those solutions haven't been easy to broker in the past? And then secondly... From the other the other role that you've had, recognising the government's got a million things to worry about right now. But if you were in government, what would you be putting in place? Given at similar stages, we've had a Pilkington committee, we've had a Peacock report, we've had a convergence task force. You know, potentially we could do citizen assemblies. If we're running up to a charter review, we've got an election coming up, we've got manifestos starting to be considered at some stage. The heavy lifting sort of starts now. If you had a magic wand, what would you do? In five minutes. <laughs> Um, well, I think from the point of view of the industry, I, I would certainly look at shared platforms, you know, and, and I think we should find a way through that sounds issue. I think it would be, you know, really beneficial if there was a strong UK audio platform, uh, which included radio services. I think that'd be good for the radio industry. It'd be good for the BBC. It'd be good for the sector more, more widely. And if the question is only really around the branding of, of BBC sounds, that, that is something which I would really strongly encourage them to, to return to. I don't know whether in TV that is still uh, still possible, um, but I think you're right that you know spreading that investment so thinly when you're competing against the biggest, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, well, literally the biggest companies in the world, uh, it, it feels slightly uh, quixotic. Um, I think I think with Channel Four the de- debate is a bit defensive, uh, and you know whether the Channel Four manages to sort of make the government think that it's going to be too painful to do or not this time. You know, I, I think that is one where the situation has changed compared to 10 years ago. You know, Channel 4 still makes wonderful programs, but it doesn't have the same place in the national consciousness. And the advertiser trends are no, only going to go in one, one direction. So th- that's why I think the idea of Channel 4 being owned by BBC Studios is interesting and underpinned by the license fee. I think that could both help the BBC with its kind of youth challenge, but also give the ability to Channel 4 to take to take risks and to really deliver to the mandate. Um, and I think the BBC needs to have a, a policy-based but open debate about how it delivers those goals in the future. So, you know, what are the goals we want from public service broadcasting and from the BBC? And then think through all the questions we've been discussing today. You know, is there is the way of having commercial services which are BBC branded which still allow it to deliver its public service goals in my view in addition to a household fee um, you know if so 
having a dynamic income would be transformative for the BBC. You know, I, I now work somewhere where if we do our job well and we attract more students, we got more money. And that is a deeply creative creative thing. You know, John Burke always used to say one of the biggest reasons for having a, a rising license fee is if you have a falling license fee, it makes the place a bit miserable because everyone who has a new idea has to stop someone else having an idea and get the money off them. So, so I think that would be transformational. Um, from the point of view of the government, I don't know if we would get this, but I think a, a really um, policy-based consultative exercise to think about the future of public service broadcasting, decide those goals first, and then once we've decided that, think about the way of funding it and delivering it and regulating it would set us up in very good stead for 2026, 27. Um, and that would need to have a lot of consultation in it. You know, I think the fact that last time we had 200,000 uh, letters sent in shows there's a big appetite for that. Um, uh, I do think the BBC is one of the great things about the UK. And, and we, we don't really have a system at the moment which says, how can we make that as successful as possible? And if we were to get to that, it would need to have. And if we were to get to that, it would need to have more stability, I think, and it would need to be funded properly. And you know, we've now been cutting the BBC since 2010. We can't keep on cutting it and think it's still going to deliver the same thing in the future. And we we have to face up to that at some point. Uh, and obviously, I would like to see some kind of independent setting of that that level or some key independent element setting setting that level. Right on the air. You've been enormously generous with your time. Thank you right, very well, much indeed. All my yesterdays. Sorry? All my yesterdays. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, a, a quote I didn't read out, Michael Jackson in 2002, it is McTaggart. PSB is a battle standard we no longer need to rally to, the pointless juju stick of British broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect these debates will go on and on, but in the meantime, uh, you've been incredibly generous with your oh, time. Boy, Thank you. Incredibly well researched. I wish, wish everything was that well researched. Very oh, nice that's very good. Very complimentary. Thanks a Thank lot, James. You. So, in James's view, we have a unique system in the UK with much to be proud of, but opportunities that have been missed along the way, and an important moment now where we should collectively define what we want PSB to deliver in future, and then focus on how we fund and deliver it. Many of these themes are taken up in our next episode, where I'm joined by Ed Richards. Ed was James's successor of, as head of strategy at the BBC, before becoming a senior policy advisor in Downing Street, and whose service at Ofcom includes eight years as its CEO. We talked about the core importance of having PSB content universally available, and the challenges of regulating a market that is changing so fast, and why his teams at Ofcom made such radical proposals on regional news and digital content to stimulate debate in the industry. He finished by echoing Mark Thompson's advice to current industry leaders to own the debate about the future. That is the challenge. I would just, I would just hope that all the leadership teams in all of these organisations sitting around saying, you know, uh, look, we've got to look after the day job, but we have to understand what, what, where we're going to be in line with our uh, purposes and ambitions as an organisation, uh, and, and and how we're going to get there, and we have to make that future for ourselves. And when you get to the, when you get to the the PSB entities, um, you know, that, that necessarily involves engaging in public policy and regulatory issues as well as just commercial ones. So that is absolutely what they've got to do. Um, they've got to accept that that needs to be a debate with the government and the regulator, because it, it is. And indeed, in many cases, in the end, it's the matter for the government. But, you know, the government is as much a taker of ideas as it is a creator of ideas so you, know, you have of course you have to take you know you absolutely have to take initiative in these things and help create your own future and if you don't you know you're just you just in a sense you've i think it's it's almost negligent not to to be honest if you're if you're in the leadership team of these organizations you've, you've absolutely got to do that so uh, that that is the central point and you know i'm sure they're all doing it but it is absolutely what they have to do and there's no point putting your head in the sand and sort of saying, let's not debate it. You should debate it. And if you think it's the right answer, you should have confidence about it and get on with it. You've been listening to Lens by British Screen Forum. My name is Pete Johnson, and I'm the CEO of British Screen Forum, where the best informed and most influential people in the UK screen sectors convene to interrogate issues of importance and influence policy and the thinking around policy. 
This podcast series is just one way in which we help our members frame the debate over the future of the UK screen sectors. If you'd like to find out more about our work or sign up for a future public-facing event, please visit our website at britishgreenforum.co.uk where you will also find an interactive timeline covering the key events, people and reports discussed in this series. Episodes in this series are released fortnightly and can be found on all major podcast platforms.